before we get started this from nitsa the national highway traffic safety administration i never knew it was pronounced nitsa and not actually spelled out but nitsa wants to remind you that it's not okay to drive stoned your reaction times slow way down when you're high just like they do when you're drunk you're not putting only yourself in danger but everyone around you so stop kidding yourself you've been using marijuana do not get behind the wheel it's inexcusable with the easy availability of ride sharing of cabs these days if you feel different at all that means you're going to drive differently learn more at nitsa.gov nhtsa.gov drive high get a dui well it's time to talk now about the indiana pacers maybe the most surprising team in the nba going 48 and 34 a year ago and joining me is a relatively newly minted writer for the indie star Jay Michael, how you doing, man? Hey, it's pretty good, man. Uh, can't wait for the uh, training camp to kick off, man. I'm kind of itching for the season. Yeah, I bet. Uh, so you moved over to Indy, what, like April of last year or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I jumped over here in April during a playoff run. So um, I, I did the last two home regular season games, kind of get my feet wet. Then I did the playoff series uh, with the Cavaliers. That was kind of by design. Kind of set out a huge chunk of the season, regular season, which was kind of great. Um, and, yeah, a, a know, lot of players would probably you know, like to do that. Yeah. Hey, look, that's what, hey, look, I, I, I had opportunities to, to jump back in sooner. And I was like, you know what, you know, decompressing for a bit after going 100 miles an hour for the last God knows how many years in a row. It was actually a, I almost got used to, uh, you know, you know, not it's almost not like going to training camp and doing a regular season. It was great. So, yeah. Well, yeah, you were in awesome. Washington uh, with CSN uh, for a while. I think you, you transitioned just from a basketball standpoint to one of the most repetitive teams that had had the least turnover over the last few years to <laughs> this Pacers team, which yeah. I, I thought was fascinating. It's always fascinating for me when a team defies expectations uh, as much as they did. Uh, let's start by talking about uh, where they were uh, as a team last year. They went 48 and 34, uh, you know, point differential of about a 46 win team. So pretty much in line uh, with where they were. Uh, but uh, I think this is important to talk about, especially with these guys, considering, you know, as we try to predict what they're going to look like this year, how did this team so defy expectations last season? Um, look, I mean, it goes all with Oladipo. I mean, I really think that, you know, if, if he doesn't pan out to be would he not just a decent player or a serviceable player, which he had been previously, but he had to be an all-star caliber guy for that deal with Paul George to work. And so because I think he caught so many people by surprise um, that a bunch of these other guys fed off it, not just off the, on the court because of what he was able to do there, but you know, off the court as well it just you know a lot of things just fell into place for them I think at the right time so I think it all started with Oladipo and then you know they were 19 and 19 at one point in the season where I, I think still at that point they were exceeding expectations because I don't even think anybody thought them to be at 500 at yeah the I sure didn't <laughs> and yeah so you know while most of us were like hey they're doing pretty decent at 19 and 19 they were like and especially Oladipo was like no this is not good enough we're better than that and I think defensively they got better as you saw it was by the time you got to the playoffs against uh, Cleveland. Um, very good defensive team. But I, I always – I found them intriguing because they were just counterintuitive in a lot of things I thought they did. Um, you know, we, we'll, we'll probably get more detail about this, about how they, you know, did a lot of mid-range, mid-range shooting. Um, they weren't a prolific three-point shooting team, though they weren't bad at it. They just didn't put up a lot of shots. So, um, you know, that kind of thing, how they – you know, Coach Nate McMillan, one, one of the first things I noticed was they de-emphasized switching. I, 
saw they how they really uh, hmm. one of the first things before I started doing the beat was I looked at I looked at most of their games uh, before I even uh, covered a game myself and went back through the details and they really emphasized particularly to their guards fighting through screens and staying with their guy that doesn't mean they didn't switch they switched a lot in that series against Cleveland because they had to but they really tried to stay at home more often than not to not put themselves in disadvantageous situations so I think and in part of the reason is they had a small backcourt and they didn't want to get Darren Collison being posted up by a 6'10 guy yeah. so but they, they were they were to me they were really different when I watched them I just I just like wow they're doing a lot of things significantly different than what we see what the trend is in the league yeah a few other people I talked to have emphasized that as well that that's something that actually maybe flummoxed the Cavs more uh, than might have been expected because I, I mean you know Kevin Love uh, had his injury issues and was awful in that series I think that Thad Young deserves a lot of credit for that too uh but was there something special I mean do you think it was just the the lack of switching that caused them to defend Cleveland so well because we saw what they did to the Raptors in the next series and you know Boston defended them pretty well too but Boston has a lot better personnel you would think you know to defend a Cleveland looking at Indiana's personnel it's kind of pretty average you know with Bogdanovich as the main guy guarding LeBron so how were they able to defend Cleveland so well in that series well, I thought specifically when going into that series, one of my observations was Thad Young is going to take away Kevin because Young is 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 valuable, so valuable to me in the sense that um, you know he can go out to the three point line and defend him, but Love can't bully him in the post. Yeah, and actually, you saw him manhandle Kevin could not turn to his inside shoulder to get into the paint comfortably against Thad Young. So what he ended up doing is drop stepping to the baseline, doing a fadeaway jumper over a guy who's pretty tall and athletic himself and that's a lower percent shot so um just that i think his 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 switchability you could put him on lebron you know you know he, he's not out of place going against some of these guards uh, that cleveland had i mean there's no kyrie irving on that team so that made it a little bit easier so i think Thad young alone taking away kevin love helped neutralize uh a little bit of what cleveland was able to do because even though lebron james was spectacular offensively in a lot of ways i mean they struggled to break 100 points i mean they averaged 94 points a game in a seven game yeah. series i mean i mean they averaged 111 during the regular season i mean that is that is monumental how they were able to bring Cleveland's offensive numbers down. Um, so I think that had a lot to do with it. I think also um, the reason why Indiana was so good defensively, aside from Thad Young and his versatility there, was you know the one the other things that I noticed when I was looking at this team before I started covering them is that Oladipo rarely was assigned to cover the greatest offensive threat in the backcourt. Yeah. He was usually put on a weaker guy, and you know to obviously to jam passing lanes, to jump passing which is why he led the league in steals and he was all defense because obviously they thought he's so quick and he's so athletic he can gamble and help in different places play at the nail do that sort of thing and he can still get back to the lesser offensive yeah, player it, he, so his it, his it, closeouts are unbelievable uh, Oladipo he's yes. just so fast right. getting back to the shooter right. in the corner right and that's smart I mean it's like so I think those kind of wrinkles that they threw at people they just weren't you know you know hey you know you see Oladipo he's not guarding the, the greatest offensive threat but man it worked and I think the kind 
combination of him and Thad Young doing what he did in the post and then switching when he had to himself on smaller guys, I think a lot of teams had trouble with that because that's usually a weakness for a lot of teams in those areas, but not for Indiana. Yeah, and it did seem like it to some degree their strategy too was we're going to let LeBron get his and you know he certainly did in that series but they were able really you know very finally in that game seven you know when LeBron had to go out of the game that they got a little bit of production which was enough to to put him over the edge I want to get back to Oladipo though what changed for him last year in uh you know compared to Oklahoma City and, and how much of that can sustain going forward into this year if he's going to make the leap to not just being you know a surprise guy but a, a perennial all-star player I- I thought his footwork got better. Um, his ability to 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 get off some of these shots, particularly you see him going down in transition, um, driving his man back, elevating for the three. He's much better at taking threes kind of in that way than maybe the catch and shoot variety. Um, I just think the way he he's, you know, I, I just spent the, I was just down in Miami with him and some of his trainers and watching his workouts and the kind of things he was doing. And the footwork that I think he's been doing, he started doing, he started doing this last year so aside from him physically getting in better shape and all those things you see a lot of guys getting better shape during the offseason and then when they go into the season it's the same old thing yeah. they just they're just in better condition Oladipo did both he got himself physically right and he had more variety in terms of his offense his handle was tight um which I think made him a a, a better threat and so he was able to create better off the dribble for himself I think uh and be able to create that separation I mean you know it was almost Kobe like when I was watching all the stuff he was talking about all of these six 600 different combinations of footwork and all these different things that he was doing. And I kind of paired what I was watching in his workouts, what I was seeing actually in games, and then comparing that to what you saw in his earlier, early in his career when he was in Orlando. Yeah. And one of, one of the most definitive things he said to me, he says, I had no help. I didn't know what I was doing. Huh. And I, I think that was off the court that he wasn't sure professional guy but actual NBA player the work that was involved the dedication how but it's not just work you can do a lot of work and you know you're basically spinning your wheels he had to learn that stuff and he says his first few years he was kind of rudderless hmm. he didn't know how to structure workouts and who you should hire why you should hire this guy over this guy as your trainer and all of these things he had to figure all of that out so I think that was a huge thing for him because when he came in the league he said he was kind of he was kind of lost he was playing basketball but there was no specific purpose or direction to how he was going to achieve what he was going to achieve he was just kind of going through the motions and relying on athleticism so I think that helped tremendously yeah Oladipo 23 points a game uh, last season Uh, I think it really interesting to me was you know early in the season he was shooting like 44 percent from three shooting it really well off the dribble shooting long twos really well off the dribble and and as I recall you may remember better than I do but his splits were pretty severe you know after basically like january he was shooting you know 30 percent from three but still an effective player and you know the the on off was really good for him and they really did not play very well even in the playoffs i don't think when he had to go out of the game but so where do you think he settles in as a three-point shooter overall 37 percent last year i mean i think given the type of attempts he was taking 5.8 per game if he could be at 37 percent, maybe you know not having those crazy splits between the first and second half of the season i think he could be right where he is but can he 
repeat that 37 percent or is, is that a little fluky I, I think he can repeat it because it, it maybe even be a little bit better because if you think about it who were the threats offensively that you had to worry about with the Pacers yeah that you had to say man this guy's gonna go for 40 if we're not careful uh basically nobody and you know now look I don't know how much better they're gonna be with some of the additions they made they added some three-point shooting um Tariq Evans you know we'll talk about him and Doug McDermott later um not sure exactly what they'll be able to bring to the table but they at least can shoot the three ball so in theory you have I would think more options more three-point shooters on the floor and it would give him more space if it doesn't improve his three-point shot it definitely should create more seams for him to get to the rim um whereas last season I think when you saw him fall off the cliff with those splits obviously teams figured out okay we weren't prepared for this Oladipo to start the season now we got enough film on him we are and they were able to bring his efficiency down kind of like the Cavaliers were able to do in the postseason and but you know that's what happens when you have a two guard behind him or uh, in Lance Stevenson who or sometimes shared the floor with him who couldn't shoot threes um you have Bogdanovich who's a darn good three-point shooter but he's a limited three-point shooter he's not gonna you know you, you can kind of gamble off of him and recover um the way the Cavs did in the playoffs and take him away Darren Collison was a the best three-point shooter in the league I think percentage wise but he's not a high volume quick twitch type of three-point yeah shooter. That, so that was vexing I, I think, for me especially in the playoffs I felt yes. like he needed to take more of those but yeah I mean he's got you say quick twitch yeah. like he's got that kind of weird behind the head long looping release yeah. that you know he's not he can't really just like hop into it really quickly or shoot on the move very right long. he need, yeah he needs a lot of he needs space and he needs a lot of time to get that shot off effectively so I think as a result people realize that okay these guys can shoot threes but we they're limited in how they get him, so we can send more resources basically to Oladipo. Uh, and I think that's why some of his numbers came down. He saw a lot more complex defenses, a lot more blitzes and traps. Um, so maybe I think he can at least maintain those numbers, if not improve just a little bit on him this season, provided that he has better three-point shooters around him. Because last season, he I mean, come on, the Pacers are one of the few teams in the league that achieve what they achieve, and they don't even have a stretch four. They still don't have a stretch four. <laughs> So Thad Young, Young, when he sets the screen up high, you're not worried about him popping the three, right? So um, Sabonis, you're not worried about him popping the three, though I think he actually played pretty well later on in the season than I expected. So um, now you have more variety, I think, around uh, Oladipo. It could open up potentially more things for him offensively. All right, we got much more to talk about here. Uh, Who's going to get better on this team? Who's going to get worse? Our, Our season predictions, strengths and weaknesses right after this. So the truth about brushing our teeth is that a lot of us are doing it wrong. I was doing it wrong before I started using an electric toothbrush. You don't brush for long enough. You forget to change your brush head on time. But Quip gets you focused on better brushing. It's an electric toothbrush that costs a fraction of bulkier brushes. I'm about to go on this honeymoon for a month, and I'm going to have my Quip toothbrush with me. It's basically the size of a normal manual toothbrush. It's got a built-in timer and guiding pulses that help you clean for the full dentist recommended two minutes. And they've got a subscription program that delivers you new brush heads every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. They even send you another AAA battery. That's another great thing. The battery just lasts for three months. You don't have to charge it constantly. It comes with this great suction mount too that you can unstick to use as a cover for hygienic travel. That's what I will be doing as well. When I go on my trip, I have a a quip that I actually just keep in my dop kit. I don't even ever have to take it out of there because I know that it's going to be powered with that AAA battery for up to three months worth of usage. 
Quip starts at just $25. That's another thing too compared to other electric toothbrushes. If you go to getquip.com slash capspace, easy to remember because we talk about capspace all the time here on the program, you'll get your first refill pack free with your Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash capspace. Don't end up with sweater teeth where you've got plaque all over your teeth. Go to getquip.com slash capspace, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash capspace. Let them know that you came from us with that slash capspace URL. What do you think they're off season? The Pacers off season? Yeah, uh, it was kind of weird. I thought it was. I thought the Evans was a good get, but I'm, I'm still. I'm not sold on McDermott. So um, yeah, me neither. Yeah, I, I was. I, I was surprised he was the first guy. I, I think that it's probably the order that it happened because usually you spend your best, your biggest money, which they did, I guess, because they spent the most money because they gave McDermott years. Yeah, I was just surprised. Pritchard really believes in McDermott, so I was like, you know, maybe the Pacers are. You know, McDermott might be one of those guys like Lance. Maybe he plays well with one team, and you know, he's pretty much trash everywhere else, but. Uh, um, uh, I, I like O'Quinn signing, letting Booker walk and O'Quinn signing. I'm okay with Evans. I think he's a low risk, high reward, but McDermott, I'm not. I'm not crazy about it. Yeah, I felt to some degree that this was a, a missed opportunity of an offseason for them because, and maybe just this move wasn't there, maybe you can speak to this more, that with this young team, they were really one of the few good teams that actually had cap space, but and also, in theory, could have gone for more than one year, right? As they did with McDermott, you had teams like the Lakers, the Sixers, if they weren't going to get that big star, obviously the Lakers got LeBron, but aside from him, they were like all right we can't spend anything past 2019 whereas the pacers i think had the ability and you know they're going to have a ton of cap space next year too but they're going to be you know in a much more competitive market as far as uh trying to use their space and so i felt if you could have gotten a piece who really could have been a part of this core uh or maybe just someone who fit in a little bit more in terms of getting a three, that that really would have been a chance that they had, but it doesn't seem like they really were able to do that. Yeah, they, they weren't able to do that. Um, uh, actually, Pritchard said that um, there was an opportunity during the draft to um, do some things, uh, but he wasn't willing to take on the... Um, you know, you'd have to take on a uh, a bad contract, in a, you know, in addition to getting one of those pieces yeah. that you're talking about. And he just wasn't willing to do it. He just thought long term, uh, you know, he went a little bit more conservative route. So uh, apparently the chances were there to do something that we were talking about. But he decided waiting and competing in next year's market. Uh, he's he's also banking on this season is going to be a better season than last year. Too, yeah. You know, so if this season is if this season is like terrible and or they completely underachieved and it's going to be a calculation gone wrong but if they actually are break 50 wins or something in advance in the playoffs then maybe it's a a, a, a risk worth taking but i think uh that that's the route pritchard's going he wasn't in love with it yeah and i mean maybe they can make this into more of a free agent destination than it's been although certainly i i think the fact that paul george wanted to leave in part because you know they just weren't that competitive maybe he would have felt differently if they were more competitive uh but it doesn't seem like at the top of the free agent destination I mean, you never even hear Indiana, despite the fact they've had cap space for most of the last few years, being talked about as even remotely on the radar screen for the top free agents. Oh, no, you should you should look at the greatest free agents that the Pacers have you. We did a ranking uh, in Star like the best oh, free agents for the Pacers. You should see the list. It, it's man. It's mind blowing. I think I think David West is number one. Is he the number one or number two? Man, after you get past like maybe number two or number three, half of those names you don't even remember. 
remember. At least I don't. It was pretty. It was a pretty barren list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and David really West bad. was such a coup for them when they got him. But yeah, they really haven't been able to repeat that necessarily. And so let's talk about on the floor now. You mentioned McDermott, Tyreek Evans, O'Quinn. Those are the three big additions. How are those guys going to fit in to Nate McMillan's rotation? And how are they able to address, if at all, some of the weaknesses the Pacers had last year? Yeah, I think in terms of McDermott and Evans uh, with Oladipo, I think you're going to see, or my anticipation is that you'll see a lot more three-guard lineups uh, and you'll see a lot more small ball lineups. Um, And that's because, you know, as I said earlier about them lacking a stretch four. So Thaddeus Young isn't a three-point shooter, which kind of puts them in a pickle sometimes. Uh, You know, and he's the, you know, he's so valuable defensively, they need to keep, they would like to keep him on the floor, right? But he can't shoot the three and doesn't, doesn't threaten the defense. So I think as a result, you're going to see some maybe Oladipo, Tyreek Evans, Boyan Bogdanovich, and maybe McDermott with Thad Young, or maybe Miles Turner is the is the five because he's a potential three point shooting big where you can really open up the floor. Uh, so I think as a result, the offense. I think what the Pacers are doing based on the roster moves they've made with Evans and McDermott in particular is the the projection is they want to be a little bit more dynamic offensively, uh, even if it means that some of the offense that they brought in uh, is isn't necessarily going to improve them defense. So uh, so I, I think they saw in the need, particularly in the postseason, um, that they need that offensive punch to be able to get to the next level. Because if they could have hit, if you could have had maybe a McDermott hit a three-pointer or had a Tyreek Evans um, hit a three or get a switch against a smaller guard uh, like George Hill, post him up and score. If they could have had some sort of option like that, that that would have been the difference between losing a series against Cleveland and winning a series against Cleveland because one of the things I talk to Pritchard a lot about is guys that help you win during the regular season and guys that can help you win during the postseason. I think clearly this says the direction is they think this is a path to winning in the postseason of having more offense because even though they held Cleveland to 94 points a game, the Pacers, you know, they weren't yeah. dynamically offensive themselves either. Yeah, they struggled in their own right, although they, I mean, it, it is worth noting that they out, what did they outscore Cleveland by like 40 points or something in, in that oh, yeah. series? Like, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. They won. They, they won by huge margins and Cleveland eked out those games. But the problem is when Oladipo left the floor, I mean, just the, the offense just went kaput. They just had nothing. Yeah. That, and I, I mean, you remember, I think it was game two, right? That he got that ridiculous third foul on Kevin Love in, yes. in the corner that I, I just went <laughs> yes. completely ballistic about uh, on Twitter. Um, yeah. So, and, and that they easily, you know, could maybe could have won that game had it not been for uh, him getting a couple of very questionable calls in the first half and yes. also you could you can question nate mcmillan because i think he actually finished that game ultimately with three fouls uh for taking him out because i think as i recall they were down already like they were down like 16 to 4 or something when they took him out yeah, they, uh but yeah yeah they came back oh uh, yeah it's all it's all flooding back to me now <laughs> 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 oh yeah yeah that's uh yeah but no yeah like it's you know with not without Oladipo in there they just you know that that's where I get to you know when I mentioned about how how you have Lance you know a lot of people in this town were going bonkers how could they let Lance go it's like well I, you know I know you guys love Lance but he's a two guard who can't shoot which is a basic job description of a two guard yeah so he not he not only can't shoot the three he can't shoot so when Victor ends up in that position even by bogus foul calls you have to have somebody to sustain the offense and I 
think the other thing that I did mention about Lance was, you know, Corey Joseph, who I thought he completely was invisible in the postseason. And Corey, I think he just didn't play well with Lance either. Yeah, and no, that, that's a terrible fit. Took him down a few nights. Yeah, I mean, the, those yeah, two guys, just, neither of them didn't work. Sure. Yeah, and then you're, right. then you're so playing the just, two bigs as well. I mean, they, those bench lineups, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't only that, oh, we don't have a creator. It was we don't have any shooting either. <laughs> Exactly. So the fact that they were able to still make that go seven games is still pretty okay. impressive and, against LeBron. Yeah. But yeah, that's how close. And, and then their their performance too during the regular season. Those four games that Oladipo missed, they got just completely blown out in three of those. Um, you know, and so I mean that's part part of you know Oladipo had a great uh, season, obviously. But part of the reason his plus minus numbers were so good is it just did not fit at all without him. And I, and I assume that is the hope for Evans. It is so Evans is going to come off the bench? You think? Are they going to have the same starting lineup as last year? Yeah, I think they're going to have the same starting lineup, but I will say I think Bogdanovich's position could be in question but I mean, you know, Evans is you know really a guard. Yeah. You know, he's six six. He could he could you could again you could run three guard lineups. We're talking about you know mostly positionless basketball anyway. I would say Bogdanovich stays the starting five stays the same. But I would say I think if a change did happen, I think that's where I would see the change if something did happen and they made him maybe a six man uh, and flopped him with Tyreek. But there's no indications that that's going to happen uh, right now. But I think that's a possibility to look for down the road. You think they would ever play Oladipo at point guard? It, it seems like they really didn't want to do that like they wouldn't have him bring the right. ball up they'd, they'd like get him the ball and like a zipper cut then he would run a, a pick and roll yeah. it, it seemed like they really wanted to yeah. stay away from that or maybe you know you could have Tyreek bring the ball up as well but it does seem like that you know Tyreek is so talented that you want him on the floor and then you know to still get the shooting that maybe it doesn't have to be an either or with them but is that something they would consider or is, is that just totally off the table I, I would I would consider it because um you know, if you're saying Tyreek at point guard, so then you shift Collison onto the bench or out of the rotation at that point, I think that's very viable because, you know, Tariq is, um, you know, Tariq has the size. He's better. I think he's a better three-point shooter uh, than, than Collison at that spot. And then you could keep Bogdanovich on there with Oladipo, most certainly. Um, but yeah, you're right. You know, the, the the most frequent play they run for Oladipo is he comes up on a zipper, flows into a pick and roll, and then just kind of figures out what to do from there. And um, I think that having a little bit more versatility and, and some more options in the offense is going to help him. And having Tyreek bring that ball up is going to be, I think Tyreek's going to have more of an aggressive scoring mentality if he's in that position. Whereas Collison, you know, I remember distinctly, um, I, I want to say it was game five and I'm taking a guess. It might've been game, may have been game three, but uh, one of the games they lost against Cleveland, but I want to say it was game five that uh, he had Kevin Love on a switch at the top of the key several times in the fourth quarter of a close game. And he was in, he was hesitant the entire yeah, time. Yeah, I remember it he well. Had, he he had separation. He could have taken a jumper, uh, which, as you and I just talked about, it takes him a while to get that shot off. So even though he had space to shoot it, he really couldn't get it off comfortably, even though you know Kevin Love is the world's greatest defender. But then what he should have done is just space, just basically I got the mismatch, flatten everybody out, space the floor, make Kevin Love come out a little bit farther, and break him down off the dribble, and pull up on him or go all the way to the rim. And he was really hesitant with that. And I think if 
if you have Tyreek Evans in that similar position when they're in the fourth quarter, whether it's a playoff game or late in the game, I think he's going to be more definitive and more decisive. And clearly he has the better size to potentially score in that situation, whereas Collison may not. So maybe it changes up a little bit in that regard. Maybe, you know, I'm thinking Boyan could fall out of the lineup. Maybe, you know, you could come up with a scenario. I think it's very viable that you could move Tyreek Evans into that spot because let's face it, he won rookie of the year as a point guard. So um, I think, but I think that's why with the roster, with the versatility, I could just see so many different combinations and options pending the opponent that they do have better flexibility than they had last year. Last year, they didn't have quite as many options. Yeah, we talked about the starting lineup, but maybe a more interesting question is what is the closing lineup going to look like if they're going to have Evans in there? I mean, I think Evans is a little undersized at the three, but you know, Bogdanovich isn't some great defensive player. I thought he did relatively well against LeBron just because, you know, and was able to use his size against it but he's really too slow to guard a lot of uh, a lot of other threes um so uh, but and Collison you know you mentioned him they don't like to switch he can get taken advantage of defensively Joseph can't shoot uh, so uh, like how do you think uh, and then uh, there's also the question of you know Sabonis versus Turner at center you know those guys bring different strengths and weaknesses as well and you know, we haven't gotten into the big guys where does young fit in as well uh what do you think are, are going to be some of the uh playing time battles here at least for the closing lineup for McMillan yeah, that's you know that 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 that's a real uh, that's going to be a real good one because um, yeah, there, there's a you know I, I like Sabonis I like you know he came up big by the way in the postseason uh, he had a couple of big 19 20 point games against Cleveland I like some things that he did but uh, I, you know I'm thinking a closing lineup I think maybe you probably put Turner at the five um, uh, or you you either have Turner or Sabonis at the five um, if you have Sabonis on the floor Turner goes to the four with Oladipo. Evans uh, and Bogdanovich. I think that's a, a decent closing five. Um, but I'm going to tell you, um, I, I, I'm not Turner. The thing that gets me about Turner is if, if he's able to be the I mean, I think that changes a lot. But I mean, you're talking about a guy who has three point shooting potential. He's he's barely taking two and a half, three pointers a game last year. Um, and if he can be more prolific in that area, I think that changes. I think all of a sudden the ceiling raises significantly because not only will he be the only big, in my opinion, that has any chance of being a spread option on his team, but I just think that versatility to that lineup will give them the the, the, the variations that we're talking about. I think that just gives them even more so. So now you can play him at the four, you can play him at the five, you can put some bonus in, or you can put that young next to him down there in the post. So, um, I, I so yeah, I, I see a, I see a starting a closing five with with Evans, Oladipo, Bogdanovich, and Turner with that fifth person being a wild card of some sort, depending on the opponent. Um, because, I, again, I think they really want more dynamic shooting on the floor to open things up so Oladipo can be more effective uh, late in game. So, yeah, so that would mean then no point guard in that closing lineup, which I think yeah. Yeah, there yeah. The, McMillan is going to have a lot of options. And I think that versatility will be good. He still doesn't have, you know, really that lockdown guy on the wing. I, I do think it, it's interesting, though, you could say uh, – that young could be a guy who could defend a ben simmons i mean because you look at some of the teams they're gonna have to go against in the playoffs now i mean all of them have pretty darn good wing threats gordon hayward jalen brown jason tatum ben simmons uh you know is a little bigger uh Kawhi leonard Giannis Antetokounmpo. you know i i guess young can guard a lot of those guys you know and would be a pretty good option i think on both simmons and uh Giannis. Uh, 
in particular uh you know and even probably Kawhi as well so that would be interesting but if you don't have a threat like that then maybe you can go for a little more offense you know if they want to take a point guard off the floor they can they can run Tyreek more at point I mean you you might be at a little bit of a passing deficit there but it's not like Corey Joseph and Collison are like these unbelievable passers anyway so I don't think you're really losing too much there uh you know Tyreek's defense has uh, waxed and waned over the course of his career McDermott Bogdanovich if they need more shooting on the floor and then you know another thing that they really struggled to deal with in the india in the uh cleveland series was the trapping and so you know sabonis is probably the better option there than turner perhaps because he can do more uh, off a short roll he's a great decision maker you know putting the ball on the floor from up there or you got uh turner can even uh, pick and pop to threes their only option there's they have a lot of options it's but it's going to be tough for mcmillan to sort through the matchups on a nightly basis at the end of the games yeah i think it's it's one of those things that you can't he has to go in there with the mindset that just because something worked two nights ago doesn't mean you're going to have to run you can run it again because it may yeah. not that combination might not work yeah uh, so or, you just got to really get out of that mindset i think a lot of coaches too will do the all right this this unit is going great at the start of the fourth quarter i'm going to leave these guys in but you forget they're playing against the backups for the other team and when they bring their starters in you wait two three minutes too long and you can lose the game in that period to, to come back with your guys so it, it is uh, difficult i mean that's that's one of the harder decisions that a coach will have yeah. you know if a bench unit is doing well yeah and it's true yeah, very true and you know and, and what you said about Thad Young guarding some of these other wings or big guys big guards like Ben Simmons or whatever you know is, is is exactly what I was referring to about having to have that fifth guy on that closing lineup is almost a swing type of guy because you know Thad is so valuable defensively you figure you need somebody to defend somebody late in the game right he, has, he his defense is too valuable to keep him on the bench but then he doesn't have the three point range to stretch so if that's the case you put a guy like that out there late in the game you're gonna have to surround him with a bunch of three-point shooters and uh but what you said about Sabonis as well like um you know I like his decision making when he does short roll I love his passing um and if he if he develops a consistent range from the arc then I think he's gonna explode um I just like what fundamentally I just like so much about what he does I, I'm a I'm a I'm a huge fan of Sabonis so this is a stat that it, my guy Liam pulled it, it was something that that we were tracking much of, of last year the big man combinations and we'll talk about how quinn tur- comes into this too but turner and young net rating 6.8 together young and sabonis 4.3 net rating together but turner and sabonis and it seems like with the signing of o'quinn they might be wanting to have sabonis play more as a four negative 6.0 net rating with that combination out there why didn't sabonis and turner work together and how is that going to shake out when you especially you throw O'Quinn into the mix but I think really you know Turner Sabonis and O'Quinn are all really centers yeah right right and I mean look O'Quinn's not and the thing with O'Quinn is I'm not a you know I think you know teams are going to pick and roll him to death I'm not crazy about his lateral movement yeah helping on pick and roll situations defensively at all um but you know you know he's not going to stretch the floor much are are they viewing O'Quinn as like more of just a luxury you know this is the best guy we could get with the room exception so let's sign him or are they 
viewing him as like, all right, this guy's going to play a lot. I think they feel they need some some toughness in the paint. Some um, he's a bigger, uh, more physical version of Trevor Booker. If you're going to have Trevor Booker, who is an undersized four who can't really shoot from range, you might as well have a bigger, stronger guy with a little bit better offensive tools who can, you know, who, who's going to do most of his work in the paint. They feel like they need that kind of that that a dirty work sort of guy in there. I think that's where O'Quinn fits in because um, rebounding wise, you know, this team, you know, they they've never oh, been yeah. really great at rebounding. So uh, they envision him as is that sort of guy. But you're right when it comes to the bigs, like they're very they're all very similar in a lot of ways. And you know, that's where I think Miles Turner has to separate himself because he's the one out of those three. Which one is going to be the spread? It's going to be Turner. If either one of either guy is going to be a spread guy. And um, in in Turner, the the one thing I noticed about Turner a lot, I did a video, a breakdown of this um, uh, in the playoffs last year that when he was the screener, he was the ball screener. Uh, he was able to pop when he would pop. He always popped to the free throw line uh, or someone somewhere in that free throw line extended area. He never he rarely popped to the yard. And the thing is, the way the defense was covering when Oladipo had the ball, they loaded to him. So Turner had freedom just to sprint to the three point line. So when he gets it back, he's got wide open threes. And he rarely did that. And yeah. and that's one of the and, best way to beat those traps too. Like, oh, you want a trap? Yeah. All right. Well, now you got to rotate either rotate a third guy over to Turner, or he's going to have a three. Uh, now, but he's got to actually make Turner's got to make the right decision too. I think that's something that he struggled right. with as well. If they did yeah. rotate a guy over, in theory, the defense should be vulnerable. I didn't think he made them pay often enough in that situation. He he, he did not make them pay enough at all and you know i was talking to some people about this uh with the team and they says you know they think it's mental that he's he hasn't been used to popping that far that he needs yeah. to work on that in this offseason so with all of that stuff he's doing with his body and whatever that's great but you know when he was popping to that foul line area it's like look the, let's say you you get the ball at the foul line it's much easier to recover to you than if you're at the three-point yeah. arc and, like and, you, you and it's a two it you're not that worried out, about whatever. it anyway exactly so it's like hey if you hit it, it's better than you hit that three. So I just thought that that to, for me, Turner is the guy. If you know, and that's why even though he's technically the five, he plays like a spread four, right? And the guy who's the four, uh, Thaddeus Young, played closer to the basket and did the dirty work in defensively and offensively. Whereas Turner was the guy who played lifted. So um, yeah, I, I, you know, but yeah. So to get back to your point, yeah, I think O'Quinn is a, a dirty work guy, a guy to fill in some of those blanks that they had last year because that's why they try, acquired Trevor Booker late because they wanted um, uh, Booker to do some of those things that they weren't good at in the paint. So I think that's where uh, O'Quinn comes in. Uh, and, you know, I'm just curious to see about, as much as people are talking about Turner, I'm just curious to see what Sabonis looks like coming into the season because I'm, I'm not I'm not sure how that how you make that work with Turner and Sabonis on the floor. If Sabonis has developed some range where he can spread out the floor a little bit, all the better for him. But uh, I think there's some potential there, but that, that part remains to be seen. I think that's a big question. The other thing about Turner and to me I mean he's one of the key players in the NBA this year both for the long-term future of the Pacers and, and how good they're going to be you know he gets some of the most spectacular shot blocks in the league but I think those of us who like to focus a little bit more on the nuances have been disappointed in where he is as as a defender right now is that a focus for, for him you mentioned that he, he's been working on improving his body that's been uh yeah. discussed some but uh is that really like what his focus is on it and where does he really need to get better defensively well man i just i don't know about you is he to me he gets bullied quite a bit yeah uh 50 50 50 balls he gets bullied all the time um yeah I feel, so uh, on the defensive glass in particular it's, it, it's ugly yeah 
Yeah, yeah. The, the, I mean, he's just from that. If he just improved that part of his game, he increases exponentially. Um, it's 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 like it, Turner's one of those guys. I, I think you could probably point out about ten different things that he's okay at that either he should be he can get better at or that he should be better. At. And I, I just think he looks disengaged. I don't know how much of his skill, how much of it is in his head. Um, the physical part of the game, though, I think is is a big part of it. And and maybe that's because he's playing lifted to the arc so much too that he's kind of accepted this kind of finesse thing that but he just to me he doesn't necessarily always seek seek out to get into those scrums the, the kind yeah. of stuff that they are gonna you know the guy they drafted from Missouri State Alizé Johnson who's basically a, a twig himself but he's a really small guy but plays incredibly physical yeah he seeks out contact that, that to, dude can rebound I, I was pretty impressed yes, with his can. rebounding in, in summer league I, I don't know what the hell he does other than that but it, those you know he's a second rounder so it's a, I wasn't my expectations were high but that that stood out one on three one on three situations I put my money on Alizé to get 65 70 percent of those rebounds and I think that's the kind of stuff that I see in Johnson that you'd like to see in Turner that would put him at the next level how how about like from a pick and roll standpoint I, I, that's one of the things too that I, I think has been uh and just recognition getting over there more verticality plays you know like he'll yes. he'll have a lot of these blocks where he comes out of nowhere but he's not you don't see the ones where he's really getting his chest in front of guys you know and really just protecting the rim without fouling is that something they're trying to work with them on right yeah right yeah being in position getting there ahead of time um yeah he, he's a those you know that's a pet peeve of mine i'm you know if you've, anybody's ever paid any attention to anything i've ever said on social media about those type of blocks you're referring to with turner um those are so deceiving because they look good they make for good clips and highlight reels but it's about that grunt work and yeah turner turner doesn't necessarily to me put himself in position to wall the glass the way he should all the time and take that contact uh that's something and i think again i think that lack of physical strength or, or of shine away from physicality i think that's more of it than anything else um anticipation maybe is part of it as well that he doesn't see the play coming a step ahead when he should but yeah i I think that that's a part of emphasis uh where he can get better on defense uh as being a position defender because to me i don't know what you think about this but to me position defense uh is is as valuable you can be a really good defensive player or a great defensive team without having all the shot blocks um by making those those attempts at the rim difficult but you got to put yourself in position and take that contact from people coming to the rim and you don't see that a lot and again that's why i said that's what thaddeus young does yeah but it's not what miles turner's do you think he can get there turner or, or is he gonna always be a you know a little bit more talented i mean he was you know last year was his age 21 season so he still has yeah. a, a long way to go but I, but i do feel that the improvement that we have hoped to see over his first three seasons has been a little bit less than i was hoping for yeah he flatlined i think last season there's no doubt about that and a lot of the emphasis is about him on offense. Oh, he's only averaging 12 and a half, 12.7 points a game. Uh, yeah, that's great. But yeah, I, I agree with you. He disappointed a little bit, but I think as much defensively as it is offensively um, where he can get better. I don't know if we're going to see him get better. I, I'm not going to be so optimistic where I'm going to say 
he's going to get better at all of these things at one time this upcoming season. Uh, but I think we need to see him get better at a couple of them. And then I, I normally say when you get to be about 24, 25, I think generally that's when people are made, right? That, yeah. That's pretty much who you That's pretty much who you are. You're made at that point. This whole idea that, you know, you're going to be a three-point shooting Dwight Howard at age 32, that's a pipe dream, okay? <laughs> that's just not going to – you can believe that and say that. That's not going to happen. How about a free throw you're, shooting? You're a free throw shooting Dwight Howard. You can start <laughs> – start with that exactly um exactly well and, and real quickly here because i know we're running long you any kind of a feel for like the hopes of getting an extension done uh, with turner and uh, indiana we, we did our mock rookie extensions and uh i ended up as the player agent settling for basically you know, in the four year 72 million range which i think i get the feeling that's a lot less than what they are looking for but do you think they can get something done i mean especially when you consider that you know his cap hold is only 10 million for next year so anything they agree to as a starting salary above that they're basically cutting into their cap space for the summer of 2019 yeah i mean i don't right there's no real i don't think there's any real urgency at this point yeah at least not not from anything that i've gathered to hurry up and lock this away and get it put to bed because they still you know there's still a lot of things that they need to see from him i think given his ceiling because uh, you know when it comes to these deals you know we see it with we see it with zach levine and all the yeah you know you can even you can even go back to when john wall got his contract the first extension yeah oladipo is a great one right like that was one that looked like it was going to be terrible and now that's a a great value right so a lot of times you do just have to gamble on those right yeah you're looking at ceiling and six eleven guys who have three-point shooting potential who can potentially be rim protectors or at least serviceable serviceable defensive players you know they're very valuable and i think as a result of him you know if he was a slow-footed plotting big then i'm saying you know that's no that that's not a price that's not going to be a likelihood at all but given the ceiling because you're it's a futures market when it comes to this it's sometimes better off if he if he pans out and you ended up giving him four years 72 million that would be a hell of a deal if he actually panned out to be what we think he potentially could so i think it's a calculated gamble and i think that's uh, i think it'll eventually they will settle on something with him but i don't get the sense that it's urgent that it must happen today yeah i i agree and i mean i think especially given the fact that there have these cap space aspirations next year and that even if there is going to yeah. be a big market next year where a restricted free agent offer sheet is coming from for a center you know I, I, i'm not yeah. sure so i mean i, I think yeah. you know, unless they can get him at something that really seems like a discount and i think to me a discount is you know a significantly below 20 million a year you know a couple million or so below yeah. that the 18 million yeah. range I, I think i probably would hold off if i were them not even necessarily saying he's not a part of our future but just to say you know we'd rather have a little more cap space next year and you know we can still exercise our restricted free agent rights and you know if he has an unbelievable year then you know you're happy to pay him uh, at you know that 20 million dollar a year or more level so uh, let's talk about the uh the strengths and weaknesses for this team i i think you know we we talked about the lack of a wing defender uh the shooting can be questionable in some lineups the the stretch four but uh, what are the big strengths of this team that we can talk about um i mean the strengths i mean we talk about versatility uh yeah which is obviously going to be a you know you got to have that in today's nba some teams you're gonna have to play smaller against and stretch the threes other teams you're gonna have to bully and and play a more slow down half court sort of offense because you know that's just the way the game shakes out so the teams that i think are the best teams in the league they're able to do both no matter what you throw at them so so i think that's a strength that they potentially have um 
the, you know, I think obviously Oladipo, I think he's going to be a little bit better. Um, so obviously he's going to be a strength for him. Thad Young's, de- you know, as the defensive anchor of the team, I think is a strength because I don't, they don't get to game seven. Uh, against Cleveland without him. Uh, Oladipo being hot and cold all year uh, during that series, what sustained him was the defense and the core of that defense was Thaddeus Young. So uh, I think that, that that's a strength. But the one wild card when it comes to that strength that I'm really curious to see, I'm intrigued by Aaron Holiday and Edmund Sumner off that bench. I don't know what they're going to be. I'm really impressed by Sumner. Um, and I, I think that can change, th- that will add to their depth and make them an even deeper team team than I, than, I, than I previously thought. Last year, I didn't think they were a very deep team after you got past, you know, the you know eighth guy, maybe. Uh, and I think they have potential to have some real depth uh, with this roster. And they may have more options available to them than maybe you and I are discussing right, discussing right now. So I think their depth, versatility uh, uh, in the, the, that core of Young and Oladipo, I think that's a really good one-two punch. Yeah, and Holiday's development will be something, I mean, they have the those two guys at point guard already so it, maybe you won't play that much this year but those two guys Collison and, and Joseph are going to be free agents so is Evans and so it, it would be very nice for them if he could at least develop into someone they felt confident about at backup point guard for next year all right I'm gonna put you on the spot here give me your okay. predicted record for the 2018-19 <sighs> Indiana Pacers 51 and 31 yeah, so that would be a, a three-game step forward from last year. Uh, five games better than you know where their point uh, differential adjusted record was for last year. So I, I mean. It- some of these key pieces are pretty young. I, I certainly understand that. Um, I think they, uh, what about for a playoff finish? I mean, where, where do you kind of see them fitting in among the other contenders in the East? I see, you know, I, I got them slotted as a, a four seed. I mean, I think Boston's going to be the, uh, I think it's going to be Boston, um, Philly, Toronto, and um in Indiana in terms of the top four in the East. Um, it, it, look, LeBron's no longer in the East. The East is a little bit more wide open. Uh, I don't really think a whole lot of the bottom of the Eastern Conference either, so I think there's yeah. going to be some, some, a lot of easy wins to pick up. I think we're going to see a lot of – I think we could potentially see a, you know more than your normal number of 50-plus win teams in the East this year because of that at the top. And then at the bottom, it's going to completely fall off. So, uh, you know, I think the Pacers get past, get past the first round uh, of the playoffs this year. I'm not going to peg them to get any – deeper than past the first round getting to the second round because obviously it depends on matchups when you get to that point um i think the wild card for them in terms of you know is, is doug mcdermott a 52 percent three-point shooter like he showed in dallas <laughs> it, it, i mean i mean if he's look if, if, if that's what doug mcdermott is on this squad oh you know I'm, I'm i might be even a tad bit more optimistic i'm just not that optimistic of his impact yeah that he'll be able to be that especially especially not, in the playoffs I, like I mean, they're going to just hunt him so yes. much. Yes, yes. And the other thing is, you know, defensively since day one, I've I've ripped him day one since he's coming to the NBA on defense about him being an open door. So, um, but, you know, again, you know, Pritchard actually believes, you know, a lot in McDermott more than I, I was kind of surprised at his belief in him. And I, I think for me, uh, that is a huge, you know, is he going to be the McDermott we think he is? Or is he going to be this guy that Pritchard thinks he is? If he's the guy that Pritchard thinks he is, is then I, I think there's you know I have no doubt that they'll break 
50, um, but uh, you know, and maybe even more than 51. Maybe they get higher than that. But uh, it, it's going to be the East is is really hard to predict for me. After you get past, I think you have three or four teams that are clearly the cream of the crop in the East, and then you have a bunch of these other teams that fall off. But every year, Nate, there's a team that we think is going to be good that's disappointing. Yeah. And there's a team that we think is going to be trash that's actually surprisingly good. And yeah. last year, good, good luck the finding Pacers yeah. were that team. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, this is a team that's really tough for me to predict. I, I really like a lot of yeah. these players, uh, but they also had a lot of players who were over their heads uh, last year. I mean, now Oladipo, I think his success, especially just what, what he showed physically, the, the improvements you've mentioned in his skill level, his finishing around the rim was something else that he really improved oh, last sick. year. Compared, yes. I mean, because that would had been really a, a huge Achilles heel for him the first uh, three, four years of his career, especially going back to Orlando. So, you know, I think he can maintain that pretty well. Well, uh, Evans, his three-point shooting is going to be huge, right? I mean, he shot 5.4 per game last year. He had never shot more than three a game, really, before that, uh, and shot 40 percent so how how real is that? It was a pretty high volume. He shot over 200, uh, you know, yeah. but he only played half the year basically in memphis two-thirds of the year because they were tanking at the end so you know how much can he give them you know can mcmillan put it all together it what is one of turner or sabonis going to be able to take the next step uh, i'm thinking around 49 wins but where do you think they're going to rank like in offense and defense by points per possession uh i think offensively they're going to be up because remember i think last year they were somewhere middle of the pack about 12 if I, well um I know their rating was around 12, yeah. about 170, was 107 or something. Like that. Yeah, so so on, um, on Cleaning the Glass, Indiana was the 13th ranked offense and the 12th ranked defense, which that number excludes garbage time. Okay, I, you know, I'll, I'll take, I think offensively they'll probably be about 10. Defensively, I think they're going to potentially slip to about middle 15. I'd say they'll be about 15 defense, 9 or 10 on offense. Yeah, so I, I mean that kind of, that ends up, you know, in that kind of high 40s maybe low 50s range so yeah i think i'll stick with 49 wins i mean i i think with the amount of young talent that they have there aren't too many regression candidates on this team uh at least based on age so but yeah i mean you know i could even i could easily see them only down at like 44 or 45 um and i'm not sure they have quite the high-end talent to really get into like that mid 50s area so that's why i'm, I'm yeah that, that's gonna take something really yeah. again that's gonna take a guy that's gonna take a guy having a type of season this year that oladipo had last like a guy who's surprising that we don't expect to have that bump somebody else is gonna have to do that on this roster yeah. and hit that that mid 50s range yeah i mean turner will have to I'm kind not of sure who that is turner would have to become really like a top 10 center which you know it, that could happen at, at some point with the three-pointer with the his ability to protect the rim if he is in position i'm gonna lower it actually i'm gonna go down to to 48 uh, for right now but i i I could i could easily see it being more than that but i'm kind of just thinking about the range here and i like to usually be in the middle of that where i kind of think of all right worst case assuming nobody gets hurt too badly you know would be 43 44 for me but best case is really probably only like 52 or 53 so i don't like being like too close to the top of that range uh yeah so i mean so so you you think what, what do you think is a best case scenario for them you kind of right in that same range as i am yeah 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 i mean i'm kind of in that range as well um you know and it's you know th- th- again there's a lot of variables that can that can change uh that for the better or for worse for them but the the benefit like i said i think is that the east after you get past the first few teams that's the one thing 
that works, I think, in a, most of these teams who are good in the East that works in their favor is that the bottom of the, you know, the lower half of the, the bracket, you know, the top eight from when you get from five on down, I, there's a there's a lot of, there's not a whole lot of separation between some of those teams if you have. Yeah, I think um, the interesting, I like, yeah, go ahead, sorry. I know, I like I like Milwaukee, but you know, yeah. my issue with Milwaukee has always been they, they can't shoot. Um, They've made some, cha- you know, I didn't think they made anything significant enough to tell me that they're going to bump up there, even though Giannis is fantastic. Yeah, the, the coach. Wizards, the Wizards, I don't trust at all. Oh, 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 really? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Never. Is some experience with them in the past? <laughs> uh, give you... <laughs> don't trust them at all. Don't. Trust. I don't. I, look, I, I, I just, I did, I just did a radio in D.C. last week, and you know they were all optimistic about Dwight Howard. I says, look, man, they could start the season twenty and zero. It's not about the short game with them. It's about the long game. And even though they may start out well or they may play well for significant stretches, if you look at them for the last five years, they've always had stretches where they play. The question is when they have a little bit of a letdown or some things go wrong or there's an issue, when the milk goes just a little bit bad, what happens? And it usually has a trickle-down effect and it lasts for the rest of the season. That's their problem. That's why I don't trust them. Oh, no, they got rid of Marcin Gortat. The chemistry is going to be great this year now. <laughs> hey, look, man, Gortat got blamed oh, for everything. I know John I know John Wall thinks I, I I protected Gortat or I was too kind to him, too nice to him and a lot of things. But I, I think I pointed out, you know, things that Gortat didn't do well or didn't do well well enough. But pointing out what other guys don't do well uh, is part of the equation. It was Look, the, the team, you cannot tell me when a team makes a downturn the way they do, you can't find a role player and say it's all his fault. You can't do that. It's, it's, the offense isn't centered around. Um, you can't gamble off the, you know, if you're defending the ball at the top of the key, if you know your big isn't an athletic shot blocker like a Tyson Chandler in his youth who can help clean up your mistake, you can't gamble. So why do that and then put him in a position to do something he's not good at doing? So that's what I thought Wall and some of the guard, Wall in particular, did a lot incorrect. That put Gortat in a bad position. He's just, well, we don't have any rim protection. It's like, you know he's not a shot blocker, so you know you can't gamble on that play. That's isn't that more on you as the best player, the guy who's tasked with stopping the ball? Or do I, or have I misunderstood basketball? Only? Yeah, the uh, Wall's uh, defense has fallen off a little bit in uh, the last few years. Well, I look forward to having you on for next year's Pacers preview when you've built up the yeah. same level of vitriol towards the Pacers that you know. <laughs> That you now have, I, have hey, towards the Wizards. I, I love. I actually. I, I, I like those. You know. I give. Look. Nate, I'll give you this one thing. I. I can be very critical of them and and John at times. And nothing. It's never anything. Never take it personal. Oh, of course. Petty. And I really appreciate and respect that. That they are not like he's not petty to that regard. In that regard. But yeah, it's you know. It's look. If the Pacers have a great season, Nate, it's going to be because Victor Oladipo did something really great and he was playing really well. It's not going to be because Corey Joseph had a bad season. Yeah. You can't blame a role player for you having a bad season that's that's just my rule of thumb when it's across the board when it comes to any team. yeah all right well thanks man I, i'm sorry i kept you long but we you know we could have gone on for yeah. like three hours here I, i'm uh <laughs> it's my fault for waiting this long to have you on we had so much to talk about but uh l- looking forward to talking yeah. more and uh thanks again for your time we really appreciate it no problem nate look forward to it thanks so we're gonna bring in danny here momentarily to talk brooklyn nets but first this from helix sleep which is the mattress that i sleep on i'm gonna be going on this honeymoon for a month which 
which is going to be awesome. But I am going to miss my Helix Sleep mattress. I know I'm going to be staying at these hotels. Like, how could Helix Sleep be better than that? Well, because it's actually customized to me. They built a sleep quiz that takes two minutes to complete. And they use those answers to match your body type and your sleep preferences, such as how firm you like your mattress, how cool or hot you sleep, whether you're a side sleeper or not. They can give you the perfect mattress at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to remember, slash capspace. We talk about it all the time here on the program. You can take their two-minute sleep quiz. And for couples, if you and your partner have different sleep preferences, they can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each size. They also have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. So there's really nothing to lose here. You might as well try this. And right now, they're offering up to $125 off of all mattress orders. They've got the mattress that's going to fit you just right with up to $125 off at helixsleep.com slash catspace. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace for $125 off your mattress order. Once again, helixsleep.com slash capspace. Let them know at that slash capspace URL that you came from us. So Danny, the Brooklyn Nets, an interesting team. They've been very active. We really liked their offseason in terms of the individual moves. But I think it's important first to talk about where this team was last year, because I think that will put this season into perspective of just what it means for the overall arc of the franchise. Yeah, that is a good place to start. And so last year, using cleaning the glasses numbers, the Nets had a negative 3.9 net rating. And so that's actually, so that's not great. You know, that's certainly a non-playoff team, everything like that. But that is more in line with a team that would win 31 games. And instead they won 28. They were not a great clutch team. And so to me, like the, the way that I would describe the Nets last year, and they battled injuries. I mean, Jeremy Lin got hurt on the first game of the year. And then D'Angelo Russell was battling stuff a lot of last year as well. And then other things throughout the roster, which opened up some playing opportunities for other guys. But where they're starting from is a kind of a clear cut non-playoff team. And they did improve off of that, but that's where they were. Yeah, and I think, you know, this wasn't a team really that was like, oh, if things had kind of broken right for us, we could have been in playoff contention. Certainly, as you look at the players that are still here, right? You mentioned the Lynn injury. Well, he's no longer a part of this team. Real quickly here, what are the big differences in terms of this team roster wise from last year in some of the rotation spots that they're going to have to fill? The big one that points out to me is, you know, at backup point guard where with Russell injured a lot of the year, Spencer Dinwiddie playing big minutes, they didn't really have an experienced backup option. And now they actually have some of the better point guard depth in the NBA. Yeah. And again, it'll depend on health, but now you can withstand an injury to one of them and one of them meaning Dinwiddie and Russell, and then Shabazz Napier can come in and he did a nice job last year for the Portland Trailblazers after kind of finding his way through the league over his first couple of years. And that trio is solid. I mean, I've talked many, many times, including using Ness as an example in prior years of the importance of 48 good minutes at the point guard position. The other part of this that I think is really interesting with Brooklyn, and this is going to be a theme that runs throughout this segment, is that they have a lot of options other places they're not all necessarily great options they're not perfect if they were they would be a better team but on the forward spots you know they have guys like Jared Dudley now and Travion Graham and you know neither one of those guys received the opportunity I think that either one of us felt that they deserved in prior places but at least there are pieces that Kenny Atkinson can try out and so they can go in that direction the other big change I would say is at the center position where last year they were kind of figuring out what they had in Jared Allen trying other options you know Mozgov was one of them 
them, but they had a lot of other guys, even had Okafor for a brief period of time. And now it looks like it's going to be Jared Allen and Ed Davis. I, I Maybe they'll go with some small lineups in certain circumstances, but I think the lion's share of minutes at the center spot are going to those two guys. Yeah, that looks like it. They even have Kenneth Fareed as well to play some center or power forward. So, I mean, really, if you look at guys who have a reasonable NBA pedigree of being in a rotation at points in their career where you could actually believe that they could be a rotation guy. I mean, they've probably got 11 of those guys, 12 of those guys uh, at this point. Now you could look the opposite way too and say, all right, how many of these guys are in the top 15 in the NBA at your position? You know, I always think that's an interesting question to talk about. Is like, all right, if you don't have any of those guys, the idea of being a playoff team is probably a little bit far-fetched. But you know, maybe they can cobble it together here with some of these bench units. You know, Din- Dinwiddie, he'll probably come off the bench, I would guess, at least to start the year. He got moved to the bench towards the end last year, even though I thought he outplayed Russell in general. But, you know, they want to see what they have in Russell. And, and I think it, I understand why they might want to start him. So with Dinwiddie, you could even have some lineups where you play Dinwiddie at the two with uh, Napier at the one. They've got Joe Harris coming off the bench, or maybe it'll be Damari Carroll. Dudley is uh, a solid bench stretch for either Davis or Farid. I mean, this could be a team that actually really gets on the offensive glass for the first time in a while with Davis and Farid and Jared Allen is also an excellent offensive rebounder. So you can see, I think when you look at just five through 10 on this team is probably, and certainly five through 12 is probably going to be superior to five through 12 on most teams. The problem is just that their one through five isn't really much better and maybe even in some cases worse than their five through 12. Yeah, that sort of parallels the Sacramento Kings had that last year where their bench was way better than their starters. And it's because they're in terms of performance, because there wasn't much of a difference there. And so then the marginal difference on other teams was a lot larger. And so they were able to take an advantage there. And one guy you didn't mention that I think could be important this year is Karis LeVert. LeVert has kind of had different opportunities over the course of his years in Brooklyn. But if if they're looking for more shot creation outside of the point guard position, I mean, and LeVert actually did play some point last year just because they didn't really have anybody else when Russell went down and Jeremy Lin was, of course, out for the year. So actually, that's a stat. I'll, 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 I was going to wait for, wait on this, but I, I pulled this when I was doing it. So last year, the Nets offensive rating when Dinwiddie played and Russell did not was 108.7, which is, you know, that's pretty good. That's not top 10, but it's, it's a good offense. Russell, no Dinwiddie, 104.7. And then with neither of them, that was often with Karis LeVert in that spot, 102.9. And so if you add in Napier and then hopefully you get better health from those two guys overall, you know, that could help their offense because they were they were bottom 10 last year but i think there were some fundamentals that were better especially the ridiculous amount of threes they took and they have not shot the three ball incredibly well under Kenny Atkinson, but with 41% of their shots coming from three, second in the NBA last season, they do space the floor. And that was coming with having to play of some lineups that don't really have that much stretch to them, whether it's Rondé Hollis Jefferson, who has worked on his jumper, but really is only good out to about 17 feet. Quincy AC played some four for them. They had to play some lineups that didn't have great shooting at the four. They didn't really have much of a stretch five option in these last couple of years they had justin hamilton two years ago but not last year uh jared allen is looking like he's going to at least try to stretch out to the corners this season so i think they will have pretty decent spacing they have a 
with Dudley now coming off the bench they can play Damari Carroll at the four as well if they want to go for that look play Joe Harris at the three they've got Crab as well who I think will probably shoot a little better from three you know he was over 40 percent in Portland he regressed badly last year uh Russell came on towards the end of the year after the break shooting the three ball so they have a lot of guys uh, who can jack from downtown uh, so they should get decent floor spacing um we talked about uh, some of the new additions i mean uh, napier i expect him to slot in really as kind of a third point guard which was a surprise why he wanted to go there maybe he just didn't have other offers which would be a surprise to me but uh, uh but maybe he can also play some backup point guard and dinwiddie can play some two or russell can play some two but they've got a ton of guys at the two also uh, with harris with lavert uh with alan crab uh, as well making 18.5 million this season uh and then davis is probably gonna be the backup center dudley you know maybe he'll play some maybe some nights he won't you know whether they're gonna play carol more at the three or the four be an interesting question uh so uh, again there's a lot for atkinson to sort out here um who do you think is likely to improve on this team I mean, I think all the young guys can do better. Jared Allen, this will be his age 20 season. D'Angelo Russell last year, you know, he he had some strong moments, but this will be age 22. I, I, I'm i hopeful that he can have a better year. Levert, and then, I mean, we, we lose sight of it, but Spencer Dinwiddie is not super old either. He's bounced around the league. He's 24. So he's kind of a little, he has a little bit of that journeyman rep because of his time in Detroit. But he's bet he was very good last year, and depending on how they use him, I think he could be better this year. Another guy I want to mention, we've talked about him a little bit, but I think this could be a bounce back year for Kenneth Freed if he gets in the rotation. I mean, just ask him to play relatively few minutes, maximum intensity. It's not necessarily a perfect fit if he's playing with Ed Davis, just in terms of spacing. And you know, Freed is not the greatest defender in the world, even though he brings intensity. That intensity is never transferred. Yeah. Both but, of those guys have like the body types, or it looks like they could switch, but they're not actually any good at it yeah but I, I could see both those and I mean Jared Dudley the same point Jared Dudley I thought did well when he was on the floor last year but he could have a bounce back here because he actually plays let's talk about Russell I mean to me they made a very big bet on him they traded away the pick that became Kyle Kuzma after they knew he was going to be Kyle Kuzma it was the number 27 pick at the time they traded for Mozgov and his three years of 16 million which they brilliantly got out of you know they still have Dwight Howard on their books for 18 million this year but did a great job in that trade trade with charlotte but clearly russell is the one guy on this team still even with his struggles who in theory could have some upside could be the offensive engine of a team that's what he was drafted to do in 2015 he has not gotten to that point he has some physical limitations that certainly make you wonder if he's ever going to get there i would say it's certainly much more likely than not that he doesn't but just what was his season like last year and what would be some realistic steps he could take to improve this season well, so I mean, one of the big things is that he he only played in about half the year. He was at 1,200 yeah. minutes, which was substantially less. And, you know, that actually was a part of what allowed Spencer Dinwiddie to blossom because of the, the two guys in front of him both getting hurt. And Russell, I mean, so you have kind of a weird combination of skills with him because he's a, he's a good passer, but I don't think he's this like elite preternatural court vision guy. Like he he's better than most. And I mean, he stood out Ohio yeah. State for this reason. It, but the, the way I always put it is he throws some great passes but he's just not consistently that great of a passer and i'm not sure whether it's because he just doesn't draw enough of the defense to open those windows or just because he's only inconsistently looking to make those passes you know, i'm not sure which of those two things it is i'm sure it's probably a combination yeah i would guess that it's a combination and that ties in with something that's important to talk about which is just what he is as a as a scorer because i mean 
he's really do, doing a primary, like a lot of his damage as a three-point shooter because he can't really get to the basket too much. I mean, he last last year, only a fifth of his shots were at the rim, which is very low, even for a point guard. And, you know, he's taking 40% of his shots from three, which is a good number, but it's he hasn't been a great three-point shooter thus far in his career. And I, I was talking about the free throw line. His free throw attempt rate last year was below 20%. And, you know, there are guys that are way worse than 20%, but you'd like to see that higher. So the combination of being ineffective at the rim not getting there that often that leads him to you know you're not as scared of the pull-up shot and he doesn't create as much separation so he's going to need to get better at kind of a couple different elements at once or one element enough that it causes a different kind of reaction in the defense where could he realistically get better you know, shot 32 percent from downtown he's been in the 32 34 percent range his entire career but realistically you know maybe he could get up i don't think he's going to get to 40 percent. i mean that was the hope for him when he was drafted i don't think that can happen in, in one year unless he just really gets lucky frankly but you know getting to 36 percent would be huge for his efficiency one thing i could actually think he could improve is reducing his usage he was at 31 percent usage and i think part of that was the circumstance of him coming in last year feeling like he was brought in to be the star on this team take a ton of shots early in the year uh you know i think if he could get into you know the 27 28 percent range that might be better and then he can also reduce his turnover 17 percent turnover rate that was the highest on the team among guys who actually really played so you would hope that especially because he's not a guy who's just going pell-mell to the basket all the time that he could reduce his turnovers he did take a significant step forward in terms of his percentage of assisted baskets he also took a significant step forward last year in terms of his finishing at the rim i'm not sure he showed a little bit more of a right hand a little bit more craft although i think most of that was due to just the superior spacing that the Nets provided over the Lakers and just as you mentioned he wasn't getting there that often so I think when he was able to get there you know he was pretty open uh so I I think that's really uh, and then maybe even taking more of his shots from three now another interesting note is that while he shot below the league average on three-pointers he's actually was great on long twos about 45 percent on two-pointers outside of 10 feet so that's something that you know usually guys don't shoot that well from there two years in a row and, and he took a lot of those shots as well so if he can cut a few of those out make a few more of them threes make some more of those threes then i think he won't turn it over as much well if he's taking a three before he's even uh getting into the lane and potentially turning it over and just cutting out a few of those long twos maybe that's how he gets that true shooting which was a a pretty miserable 51 percent last year league average was 55 now in these offense heavy days so i think that's how he can get better how much of that will happen i'm not sure and then even if it does you know is this isn't the star to bring the nets into the next era necessarily without even some bigger improvements beyond what i was talking about. and it's going to be fascinating to see how russell interprets being in what looks like it'll be a contract year i it would be very unlikely for me considering the divergence in i would guess value on a contract this because they can negotiate yeah. he's extension eligible so he's going to be sitting there playing not only for a potential contract with the nets but playing for a contract anywhere else because he has a big cap hold and the Nets have a big decision to make depending on who is interested in taking their money and everything else. And so some players interpret that as I need to be the guy and other guys say I need to have like the best season I can. Maybe you go in terms of efficiency, whatever else you're whatever else you're going to do. Because But Russell has, as the point guard, you have more discretion over the shots that you get and the shots that you take than any other player on the floor. And so 
whether he goes in the direction he did last year with a higher usage, you know, a little bit higher turnover rate, or goes into, I'm a distributor, let's make this offense sing, and then I'll be irreplaceable for the Nets, can go in that direction as well. Karis LeVert, another guy maybe you could look at as having eh, maybe the second highest upside of anyone on on this team, which is a little sobering, again, for this long-term rebuilding plan. Maybe you could put Jared Allen in that category, though, with the somewhat reduced impact of centers and what I think is always going to be a relatively limited skill set for Allen. You know, I think his upside would be like what Clint Capella was last year. And while that's a very good player, that's not, you know, maybe the a star level, a guy that you need to really carry your team into a new tier. Um, Levert, again, Again, he he's, can create shots. You know that aspect of his game has looked good at times, but it's really time to get some production. And this is as good a time of any to talk about the stat that Liam pulled for us. With Karis LeVert on the floor, the Nets really struggled. Part of that was because he was miscast at backup point guard when Russell was out last year. But overall, negative 7.6 net rating for LeVert. D'Angelo Russell, negative 7.1 net rating when he was on the floor. This is part of the reason his two primary backups or, or players who also played at point guard instead of Dinwiddie. This is why Dinwiddie looked so good by a lot of those plus minus numbers that probably overrated his impact. And then LeVert and Russell playing together those two guys we said may have the highest upside and maybe you could throw Dinwiddie into that category too uh, actually uh but those two guys playing together Russell and Levert negative 15.6 net rating in uh, about 500 minutes or so so that uh is really ugly those guys have got to find a way to play winning basketball and we mentioned everything we talked about with Russell improving was on offense obviously his defense is pretty atrocious Levert's not too great either and Russell in particular, 113.3 defensive rating per cleaning the glass when D'Angelo Russell was on the floor last year. And Russell, you know, six foot five, he, he not not the, the biggest frame, obviously, in the world, but it feels like there's a lot of untapped potential. Like, I don't think there's a top, you know, like an elite defender in there, but just getting to league average would be a massive improvement for Russell. He was bad defensively on the Lakers. He was bad defensively last year on the Nets. And you can survive. Just getting over for one screen per game would be a massive that would help for Russell at this point yeah and so and that makes it while point guard defense you know there are times when it's a little bit overstated and a little bit overrated because it, it can sometimes can be the most obvious other than like a really bad defensive center but just providing more resistance can be a big help for them and and again that also clarifies when we're talking about Brooklyn Sean Marks this year has a lot of big big decisions that he's getting information on this year and one of them I mean while point guard offense is far more important than point guard defense is well you know if d'angelo russell is bad enough that he's going to be attacked if this nets team gets better talent around him well then that makes it makes you less willing to give him big money for, especially for a long time and so that could be a, a cause of concern it is not you know if his offense was as good as let's say kyrie irving's you wouldn't worry about it as much but it, in concert with that underperformance so far i think it tells it tells a, a more cohesive story that isn't necessarily favorable to russell yeah and he's not really a switch guy either you know there's uh the lack of intensity is a big problem there he's not really that strong but you know i, I think russell lavert dinwiddie jared allen it can take some steps forward as well he had a very nice summer league in the couple of games that he played uh looked good finishing around the rim his, his pick and roll defense was good he showed some ability to switch took a, a couple of no hesitation corner threes as well that looked good uh anybody you see as a regression candidate on this team 
Well, I think Joe Harris is probably the closest just because so much of his value comes from his three-point shooting. And last year was his best year in terms of attempts and success. I mean, so he never made more than 38, 38.5% of his threes and his, I mean, he was pretty much you know, bouncing around, you know, weird in Cleveland and then the first year with the Nets. And then last year, 42%. If he's a 42% three-point shooter, even with Harris's limitations, you know, not not a great defender, you know, he does, does things that I like but he's not really providing much value other than being a shooter. And so if that 42 goes to 39, which is there's no shame in that whatsoever, he becomes a, a meaningfully less valuable player. Damari Carroll, you could throw in that category too. Uh, this will be his age 32 season, finishing out that five-year $60 million contract he signed initially with Toronto. Uh, and Carroll shot 37% from downtown, uh, but it had been injury played, actually made it through almost 2,200 minutes last season. Interesting interestingly somehow managed to shoot 46 percent on two pointers last year and his finishing uh his ability to get to the basket has really never recovered since uh, his atlanta days and that's not necessarily going to get any better but you could see his role being minimized a little bit more in terms of his offensive role you know he was right at 20 percent. he probably doesn't need to be that high he was taking a lot of floaters shooting pretty poorly on on twos outside the restricted area but anyone at that age you think could take a step back although he's also really the guy you look at as potentially a wing stopper who can also hit a shot on this team but that's about and maybe you could say Dinwiddie just because what he did last year was so far above but none of his percentages really were that fluky so and you mentioned the age thing and I think part of why he was so much better last year I thought you know his three ball looked better but also just he had so much more quickness and explosiveness he actually had 12 dunks last year which is a pretty good number for a point guard and Karis LeVert actually had 32 dunks well that's a surprise uh that he was that high in that metric you don't think of him as like that athletic of a dude but in any event yeah i don't think dinwiddie is a huge regression candidate uh you know his he's going to regress in terms of like you know his real plus minus and some of the on off metrics just because that was such a crazy split um the nets better hope he regresses in that because if he doesn't that means that russell and lavert are just as bad as they were last year in terms of their impact um We've talked a little bit about some of the lineup issues uh, that Atkinson is going to have to work through, but uh, let's talk about their crunch time lineup, uh, both what it will be and what we think it should be. Uh, Start with what we think it will be. So in terms of will be, I think it'll be their starting five or something close to it. I mean, the biggest change that you would consider would be playing. So you don't see Dinwiddie in the, in the starting lineup or in the closing lineup? I don't right now. I think there's a possibility. So for me, the four most likely, like I would say Russell, Crabb, Rondé, Hollis, Jefferson, and Jared Allen, who I think all four of those guys are going to start. And then the big question in the, is going to be who's, who's the fifth starter and then who's the fifth closer. There's certainly a chance that Dinwiddie closes. I mean, I think it just gets into a weird dynamic with, with Russell and Dinwiddie. Are those guys? fine being you know like trading off or however they want to set the dynamic with them but it's not like there is somebody else who's just definitive at that spot who who at this moment in time is making it you know making it a a, a tough de- a tough decision in terms of like or making sorry making it an easier decision is probably a better way of putting it so that could be like joe harris having a good year or Levert, or you know travion graham somebody like that but yeah i 
I, my instinct is that they're they're going to avoid the Russell Dinwiddie closing lineup if they can, just because that gets into some weird dynamics. And you know, I I'm fine with either way. I mean, I I don't necessarily love either one of those guys as a catch and shoot player, and that's really something you're looking for for a, a typically on ball guy to play off ball. Like we talked about this with Chris Paul and James Harden a lot last year. Their ability to catch and shoot made that pairing work, and I'm not completely confident on it with those guys. All right, I've got some thoughts on the closing lineup uh, as well, but first, this from our friends at SeatGeek. Football is back. And SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every game all season long. I actually was looking for sumo wrestling tickets in Japan, and I realized that it's where one of the places we're going on honeymoon i realized that with no seat geek in japan i was really missing out i i've forgotten how much i really relied on it i had to go through all these sites and like ticket brokers and i had experienced all the anxiety it was like an hour-long process to try and get these tickets whereas with seat geek it's like a 90 second process maybe two minutes or so they aggregate multiple ticket sites together and they grade every ticket based on value so they help you identify the best seats that fit your budget you see that big dark green dot lets you know that you got a good deal in that section you're looking at every one of their purchases is fully guaranteed as well you can shop for tickets on seat geek with confidence and it's not just limited to sports they got tickets to concerts comedy theater so if you're searching for a last minute deal you're planning a night out need to find the perfect gift seat geek has you covered best of all my listeners get twenty dollars off their first seat geek purchase just download the seat geek app and enter promo code dunked today d-u-n-c-d is that promo code once again promo code dunked different code this time they're changing up uh, on seat geek which uh makes me a little sad but uh, sometimes they'll do that every once in a while to uh, kind of update the tracking a little bit that's uh dunked d-u-n-c-d for twenty dollars off your first seat geek purchase seat geek life's an event and they have the tickets one thing they actually went with in a lot of end of game situations last year was ronde hollis jefferson at center and we highlighted this on a 15 and 60 way back in the day that that lineup uh was not very effective in part because they gave up 37 percent offensive rebounds and also just fouled an absolute crap load and it only ended up being 314 possessions so about three games worth uh negative 10.5 net rating for that group they actually scored pretty well but uh gave up 119.7 seven points per 100 possessions so really hemorrhaged points there those were lineups generally with hollis jefferson at the center uh carroll at the four so i don't know if we're gonna see so much of that also worth noting we talked about the dinwiddie russell combination those two on the floor of course russell was limited by injury right about the same level as it was with russell just by himself negative 8.3 net rating those guys played 700 possessions together and uh the big problem again was the defense 118.2 defensive rating so you're right maybe we won't see those guys together it certainly was not effective last season i I think atkinson is just gonna have to go with the hot hand in a lot of these situations you know you could certainly make the argument that ed davis is a better player than jared allen we'll see whether that remains the case going into this season uh at four you've got dudley you've got hollis jefferson you've got damari carroll dudley probably the best shooter of those guys hollis jefferson probably the best defender carroll the best uh, at both shooting and defending but he, he's getting a little bit older we mentioned all, all the point guards uh, is joe harris or, or alan crabby he's got a lot of different guys that he can go to it's really tough to say what the absolute best closing lineup is going to be because and i think 
think he's just going to end up going with the hot hand a lot which you know sometimes can be good and sometimes isn't but those these players are almost so similar in some ways too that you know there aren't a lot of like theoretical differences in how you might deploy these lamps it's just all right do we want to put joe harris out there or i don't care about there as a shooter you know there's uh you know those some of these lineups don't necessarily have like different facets that they bring they're just all right this guy is playing well and this guy isn't are you cool with me jumping the gun a little bit and talking about one of my big questions for this team because it ties in with this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So my my biggest question for the Brooklyn Nets this year is how much of a meritocracy is this going to really be? Because yeah. they have all these players that they have a real investment in, that they have decisions to make. Could talk about the Crab versus Joe Harris. I mean, Alan Crab is making a lot more money. Again, a trade they made definitively for that guy. I mean, they yes, they got out of Andrew Nicholson's money, but they got Alan Crab. They t- lost a bunch of cap space because of that they wanted him so how they balance that Allen versus Ed Davis is another one but the biggest one is D'Angelo Russell and Spencer Dinwiddie and so I want to know just what Kenny Atkins is going to do is he going to be empowered enough to go with the hot hand or maybe does that change over the course of the season maybe they're in different phases of evaluation at different moments in time and that's going to be affected also by a lot of the guys they have guys that you could see having hot stretches and cold stretches and especially on the fringes of the rotation I mean if we're talking about like Travion Graham and Dudley and some of the other kind of front quarter pieces I think that the rookies aren't, aren't really going to play much are they okay with that are they you know is that going to lead to them getting out of rhythm and they're just not really being the hot hand very often because they're not playing enough and so I want to know like kind of what what the front office is imparting to Atkinson in terms of it because we know those are conversations that happen on every team you know what i think actually the more i think about it i believe it's more likely that spencer dinwiddie will be on this team next year than d'angelo russell i mean the cap holds are a major part of that story i mean because so for those who for those who aren't as familiar with this because you and i talk about enough that this has become a thing that assuming d'angelo russell does not sign an extension his placeholder for the 2019 offseason will be $21.1 million. That is a lot of money, and that can only be replaced by either renouncing him, and then you'd have to sign him with cap space or an exception, or a new contract. And Dinwiddie, his hold, assuming he does not get extended, he is extension eligible as well, his is at the minimum. So you could do what they did with Joe Harris, where you come to an agreement, you come to terms, and then you sign everybody else, and then you bring in Dinwiddie. And also that, you know, that lines up Dinwiddie because you could pay him back up money you could pay him strong backup money if you get somebody better than him you know there are a lot of ways to do it and also i would argue that dinwiddie is more versatile due to the size and the way he uses his size i think you can play him in a, in more different configurations whereas d'angelo russell well at this point in his career he's pretty much shown i'm an on ball i'm an on ball primary ball handler that's really yeah. what i am and so Din, d'angelo russell has never had any team success when he's been on the floor and at least dinwiddie you know, they weren't unbelievable with him out there but he he at least like was able to show that the team could not get killed when he was out there which you know which happened with russell same thing with the lakers yeah so i i think that's a big part of it and you know we mentioned the dinwiddie extension it seems unlikely that they would agree to that now that they have these big cap space aspirations after making the mozgov move but they did make a move in guaranteeing his salary for this year already much earlier than they had to so that seems like maybe the beginning of that plan to do exactly what you talked about of you know 
all right, we can't extend you right now, but here's a gesture of goodwill. We think you're a part of the future here. You've got this value of your low cap hold. Uh, and we'll see you know, what they're able to come up with in terms of free agency. I am a skeptic about that in 2019. Well, uh, can, but, I, can I give yeah, the that, numbers that basic, like the basically just so we, ha- we have it out there? I, I was also yeah. working on a piece on this. So um, if they keep Russell and Hollis Jefferson's holds on the books, but let basically their veteran expirings go, they have about one max slot. It's you know somewhere in the 30, 30, 30 to 35 million range, depending on who you see keeping and not, and, and not keeping. But then if you move D'Angelo Russell and let's let's say you keep Hollis Jefferson on the books, then you're starting to talk more in the low to mid 50s. And so from that point, you could then do some bigger stuff. I mean, a lot of that depends, just like for a series of other teams, depends on who says yes. You know, so it's like, hey, we, we can pitch these guys. But then if we don't get two max guys, you know, if the equivalent of Paul George doesn't give us a meeting, then you can do it that way. And that's part of why D'Angelo Russell is going to be held in the mix, especially if he feels that his qualifying offer is not a number that he would accept. Then the Lakers are sorry, not the Lakers, his his former team. The Nets don't have to be really threatened by that possibility. They can just give him the qualifying offer and then pull like what the Celtics did with Kelly Olynyk if the right guys say yes. Let's talk now strengths and weaknesses for this team. I think the number one strength by far is going to be their depth and their bench, particularly if they have Dinwiddie coming off the bench. Uh, They're going to take a lot of threes. Are they going to make a lot? You know, I think they're in a little bit better position to do that this season, both with internal development, having a little bit more in terms of stretch options. Uh, Anything else you see uh, as a big strength for this team? Well, I think that they play. I, I thought they were well coached last year. It's always kind of funny to talk about when a team is, you know, bottom ten in the league. But I, I thought, you know, there were a lot of games that they hung tough and then they got beaten crunch time. Like they had a really bad crunch time record last year, and you know they had a negative eleven net rating, nineteen and thirty one in those. So if they if they hang tougher, if they can get to fifty percent in those or, or even anything close to that, they can do that. And I remember even when they've played the Warriors under Atkinson, you know, and you obviously don't want to build too much on a sample. And we've seen I've watched them all the time anyway but it just seems like they're in more games more often and i think some of that is a tribute to atkinson some of that is the variance of shooting a lot of threes when you're not a particularly good team but i think that they've done they've done a good job there and then i guess you could say the other strength is we'll see how they approach the remaining part of the season because it looks like there are a couple teams in the east that are just you know like the hawks most notably they're just tanking and so if they're competing more than those teams should they choose to do that then that will be i guess an advantage in terms of winning some games yeah i mean maybe you could just say playing hard hard just overall energy culture maybe could be part of it but yeah still despite all that you don't really have anything that jumps out as just a tremendous strength Oh, and that was the other thing I wanted to talk about was a lot of times when we talk about this coaching and culture and all that stuff, it's a team that's good defensively. And the Nets were not particularly good defensively last year. Some of that is personnel. It it will be for a lot of these, especially young teams, but they don't have that part of like the Popovich mojo or anything like that. Or even though that Hawks team that, you know, that was the, I think they were the best defensive team over the second half of of the year when they had ended up with the number one seed. You know, like a lot of times when we think of a team as well coached, it, it bears out there. And you could argue that, with Russell's limitations and they didn't really have the right big man rotation that or, or wing depth actually last year but you know you'd like to see them better than yeah, 22nd I, I think finishing yeah I think finishing 22nd in defense with this talent was actually like not bad uh and finishing 22nd in offense with this talent was not bad either I mean they, they had solid shooting but you know really did, they had one guy for big portions of the year that really could, could be a, a pick and roll attacker in Dinwiddie so weaknesses on this team uh, i mean the, a lot of them come to mind still uh 
A big one, actually, that it didn't really get talked about is forcing turnovers. There's really nobody on this team. Let's hope that Hollis Jefferson could be this type of a ball hawk. I, I've been a little disappointed with his development defensively. Uh, and, you know, Russell can, can get some steals for once in a while. That's about all he does defensively. But they were 30th in forcing turnovers last season. And I'm not really sure how that's going to get any better. You know, even the guys they added, Napier, Dudley, like those guys, uh, not exactly ball hawks. So, so so I expect that to continue to be a weakness. I think just getting to the rim is another one. Russell, not his forte. Dinwiddie is really, again, the one guy who who gets there. Levert does some too, but there's not really anyone. They don't have anybody who can fly in from the wing and dunk on you, really. Uh, maybe Jared Allen with some more experience as a pick and roll guy. Like he will try and go up aggressively and dunk it, but there, there still isn't the guy who's going to just put pressure on the basket, really put opposing big men into difficulty at the rim what about from your standpoint it goes along with those lines of the lack of like imperative type of guys so if that can be on either end of the four where when it when an opponent is coming in and they say oh we have to think about x that could be oh this guy's a great man-to-man defender or, oh they have a shot blocker at the rim this guy can catch and shoot i mean they have guys that can do that but there's nobody that you're like building when you're doing that coaching strategy meeting right before saying oh this is this is the most important thing we have to do like we're not going to change our game plan teams don't do that for regular season games very often but there isn't even anything kind of in that next level it's like keep the guy in front of you you know like especially when russell's limitation one other strength i wanted to bring up i had forgotten about this we talked about it during the season but now it's been months since then was part of what brooklyn did really well defensively last year was the shot distribution of their opponents so that's something we've talked about for a lot of different teams that i think is really interesting but brooklyn you know they didn't give up that many threes last year only about a quarter of opponents shots were from three gave up a lot of mid-rangers and more from floater range than at the rim. And that's exactly what you want. So they were giving up the right shots. They just went in more often than they would for a team that was better defensively. Yeah, another thing you can point to as a, a weakness is home court advantage, 29th in attendance. I mean, this is a team that has had the least excitement, the, the worst TV ratings uh, on a per capita basis in the NBA. You know, really the only time it gets to be rocking is when opposing teams come in and, and their fans rooting for them um another key question to me is you know we've talked a lot about russell but the development of jared allen you know that's if he could just like turn into a monster and i think he has the physical tools to do that if he can really get to be an above average defensive center as soon as this season which that's not impossible to me uh, frankly with the coaching with the the tools that he has seven five wingspan good feet uh, that if he could get to be really good defensively maybe that's what unlocks this team and gets them to being you know at least an average defense uh because it's just it's so hard for me to see how this team gets to being average on either end of the floor i mean that's the only kind of out i think that they have there yeah if they could hit a bunch of shots really offensively would have to be how they do it but they don't have great shooters overall so it would take russell dinwiddie those guys taking a big step and then other guys i mean you just like you can't be a good offense without like higher level creators right they have i think right and and so my other big question which kind of ties in with when we talk about predictions which will come up is before the offseason something you and i talked a lot about was the idea that this was brooklyn's first year in such a long time where they actually had their own 
own draft pick. And there are a ton of different incentives out there for teams that think they are free agent destinations, whether that is legitimate or not. And sometimes they want to be more competitive. Sometimes they, you know, they want to show that their guy, young guys are good. So guys, are, hey, I want to play with player X or something like that. But Brooklyn, you know, so that that kind of set of incentives also can shift once the playoff picture clarifies. So if it clarifies relatively early on for Brooklyn, let's say before the halfway point, then do they go, hey, we have our pick this year. Let's maximize that opportunity and and go in that direction. Maybe focus more on the young guys. However, there, there are a bunch of different kind of ways you can massage that into, into being more likely. And they might do that. But at the same point, you know, maybe they're sitting there going, okay, we have, we have this ownership change that's coming up. We want to be in free agency. And like we saw for a few teams last year, that difference in mentality could be really important if there are a lot of teams in their general area. So if there are like five or six teams, the ones that care the most, the ones that play harder will move up a couple of slots and they'll be have worse draft picks. Yeah, I mean, that's a, as good a segue of any into our predictions. A lot of things working at cross purposes, uh, as you alluded to here. I think the bench is something that could really keep them in games a lot. That they're, I think they're going to have the talent advantage on the bench. That their their starters, no matter who their starters are, uh, could struggle. But especially, you know, if it's Russell, I think it's more likely than not that Russell still contributes uh, to winning basketball pretty negligibly. You know, unless he takes a real step forward from where he's been already. So I, I think you know their starters could struggle. I think their bench could come back in and help them get back into game games you know if they had the same starting lineup and just an average bench you know i'd be a lot lower on them i'm ultimately going to go with 30 wins they won 28 a year ago you mentioned they had the differential of a 31 win team but there is also the tanking aspect but then there's also the free agent aspect but it's just hard for me to see how they can beat their rankings in offense and defense by much this year and maybe russell breaks out on offense maybe allen breaks out on defense that's how you get there you know they cobble together the bench units uh but I think I'm going to go with 30 wins. It just there just isn't enough high end talent here to get me beyond much beyond that. Uh, but you know I could easily see them beating that if I had to pick whether they're going to be above or below that. I probably would be above that. Uh, what do you got for them in terms of your prediction? I'm going to go with 32, and I'm going to go a little bit the opposite way. That I think there's a meaningful chance that it goes below. Some of that is that tanking pressure. You know if if they get out of it, and I think they're a little they're a better team than last year overall. I mean, health health will help. Just having more talent will help. But how Sean Marks interprets these incentives. I mean, they have players that are good enough that they could maybe try to trade them, probably not for like a first round pick or something like that, but maybe they could get a second or something. You know, I think they're going to be in a similar boat to where Atlanta was last year with guys like Ersan Eliasova and Marco Bellinelli. And you can take that in a lot of different directions. They could also end up buying some of those guys out and they could, you know, tank a little bit harder towards the end of the season. But if they're in it a little bit more and then this is the other part of why I'm going a little bit higher with 32. And I thought about going as high as like 33 or 34 is, and this gets into the best case scenario for them. I think they, you know, I could see them winning in the mid thirties. I think, you know, high thirties would be like a real close to best case scenario, but something that could push their win total higher is if the, 
eight spot in the East starts falling towards them. And so a lot of that would be like Cleveland having a rough year, maybe one of the Detroit-Charlotte pairing not having health on their side this year. And so if they're kind of in that mix, even if they're not like going to get the spot, which they could, but even if they're not going to get it, that just keeps the team pushing for longer and that could end push them to a, a, a higher overall win total. Yeah, I could see that being the case, you know, especially if some of those teams get off to a rough start. I mean, we haven't done all these teams yet, but it wouldn't shock me if these guys slot in, you know, in like 10th in the East in our projections, right? And so that's a po- quite possible, you know, and I don't think we see either Detroit or Charlotte as projecting to be like even necessarily a 500 team. So you're right. Yeah, maybe they could get into the mix a, a little bit, but, but I would see that as kind of their best case scenario would be 37 wins. For me, it sounds like you might be a little higher than that. Yeah, my thought was 38, so not really much higher. I don't usually look yeah, at it and, this... And this is a team that I think is in a pretty narrow band overall, the way I see it. You know, I, I, they they don't have a disaster potential, which we'll talk about in a second, but they they seem like, you know, and there's just not that much high-end talent here, not that many guys who can just break out, but then they've got all this depth too, so an injury issue is not going to come. Well, and we also don't think that they're going to like really buy now. Like, I don't think they're going to trade their first-round pick to add somebody, though that would be a really interesting tactic if they thought that, you know, they were starting to think that free agency wasn't going to be for them just getting somebody else. But something I wanted to mention in terms of the idea of tanking, and we can lead this into kind of worst case scenario. I hadn't looked at this before now because I do some of my schedule work later in the offseason. In the last three weeks of the season, every single team Brooklyn plays is a, I would say, a likely playoff team. You know, not all of them will because oh, interesting. Injuries. So they play Portland, Philly, Boston, Milwaukee, Toronto, Milwaukee, Indiana, Miami. That's their final stretch. So all of the, and not only are all those teams good, but almost all of them, if not all of them, are going to be jockeying for seating and things. So I don't think they're going to be, you know, throwing scrubs out there. And before that, you know, they have that, the Portland, Philly part of that is the end of a, I think it's a seven game road trip on the west coast so i mean you could see that if like around the buyout deadline if this thing goes south they could push into the bottom if they had the organizational imperative to do it and if they're out of the playoff picture i would advise them to do that yeah, I would too. There's still the the sour taste in the mouth that that could lead for potential free agents. Uh, but again, you know, I, I think that their free agent hopes are maybe being overstated a, a little bit. Uh, so I, I see maybe 25 wins as their worst case scenario, though. Uh, what do you think? Well, so if we look at it last year, there were you know a group of teams in the mid 20s, and you know, like I, I don't think they're going to be worse than like Atlanta was last year as a 24 win team. But then you could also use the parallel of Dallas. So Dallas last year 24 and 57 but they actually were a more extreme version of what Brooklyn was with a, a good point differential. So I'm going to go 26. Yeah, I made this point that we probably should have a larger spread in our best and worst case scenarios. I'm kind of thinking of it as like more, what's the worst case scenario for their record based on point yeah, it's differential? More like ten, but, it's know, more like know, the 10% outcome yeah. and the 90% outcome, not the zero and the 100. Because yeah. the zero and yeah, the I mean, 100 are, uh, are totally crazy. Like, oh, could they theoretically like make every three and win 45 games? Maybe, but that that's... It, it's so far out of the range that that's for for me as an exercise that's the way i see it yeah no, and i feel the same way and you know if they get super lucky in close games like i'm not really considering that because that is just luck right i mean there's not that i'm more looking at it as like okay in terms of their point differential like what's the best they 
could really get up to in terms of like fundamentally what is this team you know as opposed to okay take take whatever you think their talent level could get them to and now add another five wins to that because they might get really lucky you know so really on a lot of these you know you should almost be adding another three or four wins or subtracting another three or four wins just based on potentially having bad luck but that's not quite how we're looking at it um so what was your worst case again 26 26 all right got to make sure i get all these written down here uh anything else that pops out to you about this team before we get into some new stuff I like that the rubber is going to meet the road with them really in the 2019 offseason. So like D'Angelo Russell, this is the time to figure out what you have in him. And I would say it's true of, of really throughout their roster. And I mean, one of the, like theoretically in like some of the best case scenarios, they could stretch Ellen Crabb if they really, really wanted to, like they could go in all those directions. And so how do their incentives break out? Who, who stands out? Because as we've said, like, I don't think they have a lot of like super high ceiling guys, but they have a lot of players that I think could be useful pieces on good teams. They just need, it, it's sort of like where Orlando was a couple years ago and they didn't add the star talent around them and i'm hoping that brooklyn will have that opportunity i'm very interested to see who leads this team in minutes no player played over 30 minutes a game for this team damari carroll last year was 29.9 you imagine with dudley being there with harris back farid maybe taking a few minutes at, at power forward alan crab being a big part of what they wanted to carroll maybe even potentially being traded if they're out of it or bought out you know he, he could certainly help a team like the rockets on the buyout market for example I don't see this team taking on a salary plat past 2019. Uh, but so I, I think that could be really interesting uh, to see who that's going to be. You know, is it going to be Russell? Well, he hasn't been that healthy. Dinwiddie, uh, he's probably not even going to start uh, this year. Levert, well, they've got two other or two guards who are there. Jared Allen, well, he's a center of those guys uh, and they've got plenty of good backups. So I'm very interested to see who's going to be up there. I mean, I imagine it, it could be quite possible that no one plays 30 minutes a game uh, again this season for this team. Yeah, it's, it's entirely possible. I hope that some guys break out and deserve more minutes but that's certainly a possibility all right let's hit some news here we'll just go through alphabetic order some quick hitters uh eric pinkus uh, noting something that we were critical on and now we are less critical about only fifty thousand dollars of ryan archidiacono salaries guaranteed with the bulls uh so that actually would make him eligible to go back to the g league if you have more than that guaranteed you cannot play uh in the g league for that team that season uh in that cleveland trade for sam decker the Cavs got enough cash to offset his salary between the 2.8 million that he's making down to the veterans minimum so it's basically uh the Clippers paying the Cavs to take Decker whatever it would have cost above the veterans minimum and then the Cleveland also signing Isaiah Taylor to a one-year deal uh, at the point that'll be an interesting one Taylor is someone who had some talent uh, but he uh, was not brought back in Atlanta uh, and really struggled to make shots last year but still someone I think is a, a worthy flyer it's on a out of the parts bin at point guard uh what else we got here a couple of injury-related updates. Michael Porter Jr. had the, as at the rookie photo shoot, I think it was like two weeks ago, and said that he was feeling good, and he's hoping to be ready in mid-October. We've heard things like this before, so I don't. I'm not taking. I'm taking it with a whole bunch of salt, but it's good that he's feeling better, and we'll, we'll see where it goes. I imagine that the Nuggets are going to be exceedingly cautious with him, as they should be, and. 
what what's also interesting about it was that the the surgery they were fixing something that was left alone in the first surgery like the quote he had was the first surgery helped a lot but it didn't fix the entire problem now that they did this one i've got no pain or anything i'm excited so that's positive we don't know exactly how much to read of it but i want i want every player to to maximize their physical potential but michael porter is high on that list because the guy we saw at the hoop summit was awesome yeah there's a second disc in his back that apparently they left alone that was also either became symptomatic or was at the time they decided they didn't need to operate it on so uh that's good to hear that he's uh, feeling no pain bad news out of detroit john luer undergoing surgery to repair a meniscus injury in his right knee remember that luer lost all of last year uh, with an ankle injury that eventually required surgery he was trying to get back and then he injured his medial meniscus but sounds like it was just a, a trim and uh keith langlis reporting that he could in fact uh, be ready for camp and uh is believed to be back for sure by the start of the regular season uh what else we got here we missed a trade for a little while. Missed is a strong word for it, but John Owenawaku was traded from Houston to Dallas. He had $1.5 million guaranteed. Dallas actually took him into their cap space and then waived him. And what Dallas got in the deal, I think they got some cash as well, but they got the right to swap the Warriors 2020 second round pick, which I believe they already had, with Houston's, but Houston's pick is protected just because this, it, it can't, it, nothing could be straightforward. But, it, but you know, that is a, a, a slight benefit for them houston and i mean basically it just if one of those teams gets more injured or something like that it, it could open the door so it's you know a decent piece of business for dallas and for houston saves them a bunch of money yeah onoaku uh, really had not developed much not a guy who has a great fit in the modern game in indiana J. Michael and I obviously talked about them extensively earlier in the program. Nate McMillan is finalizing a contract extension. McMillan had signed the usual four minus one deal. It sounds like had one guaranteed left. So we don't know the numbers on that McMillan extension. Uh, and it still is always interesting to me, this idea that, oh, you can't have him going in as a lame duck, which he wouldn't have been anyway. You know, they could have always exercised that second year team option, but teams seem to treat coaches uh, and executives it was so much different than players for some reason mcmillan i thought struggled a little bit in his first season uh was a lot better last year had some foibles in the playoffs but difficult to argue against the idea that he did a good job last year so you know he's been kind of a mixed bag i don't know if i would have gone with this extension especially for kind of a money challenged team like the pacers but the thought is oh he could be a lame duck we got to extend him and you know if you if you buy that okay um this is interesting woge report still that uh in a piece noting that bruce bowen actually was fired as the clippers color guy and i didn't think he was amazing in that role uh, but he made some negative comments about Kawhi leonard not trusting the spurs where of course uh, bowen played for a long time and with the clippers trying to be suitors for leonard in 2019 free agency they did not want bruce bowen on staff especially with leonard seeming to be kind of sensitive uh, about his image going back to the way he was angry with the spurs so uh, bowen is out of there and another nugget 
nugget from that Woj piece is this quote or not a quote but just a, a line from the piece Leonard is primarily interested in signing with the Lakers or Clippers in July so some of these reports that oh he might be willing to stay in Toronto blah blah doesn't necessarily appear to be the case he could certainly be sold on them but uh that going to LA appears to be the plan as of now for Leonard Woj also mentioned in the piece that the Clippers tried to acquire Leonard in in July before the, the Raptors deal I wonder what the terms of that were I mean we talked a little bit about well extensively when the trade happened about what else could have been on the table and the Clippers combination was different just because of what they what they had they had already used their most interesting draft picks but we'll, we'll see with that Memphis signed Shelvin Mack this had been rumored for a long time and Mack gives them 15 guaranteed contracts though Dakari Johnson they could easily cut that was a move they they moved Gerald Martin for him to clear a little bit of luxury tax space but they have three point guards that are guaranteed Connolly Javon Carter who they just drafted and now Mack and that might not bode well for Harrison who I thought has done a really nice job for them over the like, he was their primary back he, he did like I was gonna say it was their primary backup but he did a lot last year and incidentally the place that would make the most sense should Memphis wave Harrison which I don't support would be Orlando the team that not only traded did the Dakari Johnson Jarrell Martin thing but also with Shelvin Mack's last team yeah you'd imagine Harrison would get claimed I don't think he's gonna get cut though I think they're they're happy with him he does have a guarantee date all the way in January at the league-wide cut down date but I would imagine yeah, they Dakari have Johnson they have enough point guards they, the they have enough go. they have they have the roster spot for it so they might as well just keep their best players yeah and we could see maybe a cash-based deal in which they move on from Dakari Johnson just to avoid having to cut his 1.4 million dollar guarantee uh in Minnesota they signed James Nunnally who, who's been playing in Europe but has a bit of a profile as a 3 and D guy he's 350,000 guaranteed in his first year but two-year minimum contract and then Jaleel Okafor signing with New Orleans $50,000 guaranteed what a fall from grace uh, for Okafor uh and then they has a second year team option on that which if taken would have $54,000 guaranteed um so yeah I mean and, and Okafor you know I'm not sure how good of a fit he is in New Orleans he's been rumored to go there at times in fact that that was the rumored trade destination that one of the uh Colangelo burner account tweets uh talked about that he failed a physical there which wasn't quite accurate but maybe he, they got his medical records and that scuttled the deal uh and then Okafor's former home in Philly got some bad news uh out of the summer yeah really unfortunate Zaire Smith has a a fractured foot we don't know the ex- I guess we talked about this no we talked yeah, about I this already on, on the uh on the summer league all right I should have deleted that it's uh, still unfortunate yeah because I, I made the snarky joke about uh Ben Simmons taking so long to come back from the Jones yeah. fracture because of the rookie of the year bonus in his contract so the other piece of news is San Antonio waving Brandon Paul it looks like they were facing a roster crunch anyway but you know a, a guy that they took a worthy gamble on after a strong summer league performance and now they can go in a different direction all right that will do it for today but a reminder that you should not drive stoned your reaction times can slow way down when you're high just like when you've been drinking so you're not only putting yourself in danger but everyone around you so if you feel different you're going to drive differently there's no excuse at this point in time whatever substance it is that, that you may be using to drive with all the ride sharing available cabs learn more at nitsa.gov the national highway traffic safety administration nitsa.gov drive high get a dui